I would like to invite you this morning to turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. And if you have a a bookmark or some other way to mark your Bible, I would also like for you to go to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. So if you all would do with me and join me this morning by standing for the reading of the word of the Lord, if you are able, we are going to be reading through Psalm 89. Psalm 89. A mascal of Ethan, the Israelite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass and scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. and With my holy oil I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes from before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth. My steadfast love will, I will keep, him for, uh, keep for him forever." And my covenant shall stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his thrones as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by, the, his, by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. But now you have cast off and rejected. You, you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all the, his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul? From the power of Sheol, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and I have bare in my heart the insults of all the nations. With each of the enemies mock, O Lord, with, eat, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for your patience. That's quite a text. There is a whole lot there. There is a whole lot going on in Psalm 89, which is why I found it absolutely necessary that we were to read the entirety of it. It would be far too easy for us to engage with this particular text and with the Davidic Psalm and be like, see, this is awesome. Yay, this is great. But right in the midst of this particular Psalm, we see something has happened. We see calamity has come and befall Israel. In Judah, there was a necessity within the people to sing a song, to be reminded of the steadfast love of the Lord, that something had happened that caused the people to sway away, and it felt as if the Lord had turned His face away. So they needed to sing songs of repentance, songs of reconciliation, songs regarding the steadfast love of the Lord. So as we've been going through, and we will continue to go through, we have observed David's experience. Joy in his calling and in his anointing witnessed the glory of the might of God and removing the reproach that bore down upon God's people, being Goliath, faced vengeful manipulation from a king who used those who loved David to destroy him, chased down and sought refuge in a synagogue, given bread by a priest who would lose his life and the lives of the whole town for simply being there. He asked of God, he was asked by God to aid cities who are being oppressed by the Philistines while he himself was being oppressed by the king of Israel and his army. He overcame opportunities of taking matters into his own hands because God stayed his hand from taking Saul's life. And lastly, he would observe God fulfill each and every word he had made to David from Goliath to obtaining the throne at the death of Saul. David had been through some stuff. But David, as we've been going through, you notice that he inquires of the Lord in the midst of it. 
When he would hear bad news, he would inquire of the Lord if he was to receive that bad news to go and assist, and the Lord would tell him to do so. The Lord would give him a promise about the outcome of his going, and he would see it fulfilled. He would be told by the Lord to go and take refuge or to go and help this city, to go and do this, and David would oblige. David would believe by faith, even though his own life was being completely oppressed. He was being chased and was, his life was being sought by a, an entire army, 3,000 people, as well as King Saul. And yet he still would abide. He still would abide. He still would go. He would still engage. He would stay his hand from killing Saul. Because the Lord did not allow that to happen. The Lord had made his word known to both Saul and David about the plans the Lord had for both of them. And it would be by the Lord that this fulfillment would happen. So everything that we've seen up up to this point, the Lord has done. He has done it by the work of his own hand, by the work of his own might, not David's. And David got to have a front row seat in seeing all of this done. Every bit of it. Even staying his hand from taking Saul. Whenever he could have just dealt with the problem himself, taking his matters into his own hands, he resided back and did not engage because he trusted that the Lord would do exactly what he said. And guess what? Last week we found out that he did. That Saul and the whole house of Saul would come to destruction, not by the hand of David, but because the Lord was faithful to his word. David had much to rejoice about. So whenever he brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, he could not help but rejoice and sing praises and worship. Because everything that he had experienced out there has now come to complete fruition. That he would secure the throne. That he would be sitting there. And even in the midst of the fulfillment of his own promise by God to him, he even proclaims of himself, I am simply the prince of Israel. He doesn't even elevate himself to the title of king because the reality is as David did not see himself as king. He saw the Lord as king and that he simply got to participate in allowing him to rule over the king of Israel or Israel. That he got to be there face forward, second-hand man, right-hand guy to the Lord who ruled. From all the heartache and strain, David's faith would become sight as God fulfilled all He would fulfill it all in his own perfect timing. Last week, we took a look at the heart of worship found within David as he said of himself that he is the prince of Israel because God would be placed in Jerusalem as king over Israel. David would sing the faithfulness of God to the people, ushering them into grateful worship and praise for all the wonders God has shown in Israel. He would not lead the people to sing of his own praises, being David's, but he would lead the people and guide their hearts to praise to praises where it was supposed to belong, the true king of Israel. The one who now sits upon his throne of mercy as the Ark of the Covenant returned to the heart of the kingdom. But what happens when the singing stops? What happens when all those moments of all that wonder and all those signs There's a time that passes. What happens to the heart of people who are so fickle to forget? What happens? What happens when the music stops? 
What happens when the joyous praise of God's wondrous works are forgotten and the people fall away again? What happens when the hearts of the people are whisked away again? What happens when God's people fail? Will the promises remain true? Will God still be true to His word even when the music and the worship stops? When we don't deserve the grace and mercy and love of God, will it remain as steadfast even when the people break the covenant? So here's the question I have for all of us this morning. Does God's steadfast love endure forever? To set this up, we've got to start with number one. We've got to see the covenant. The covenant that was made with David. This is right after all the worship happened. This was right after he brings the Ark of the Covenant back in and that the, all the word and the promises of David to David were fulfilled. The Lord then makes a covenant with this man. Now, if you know anything about covenants, it's beautiful because this will be the last clarifying covenant before Jesus Christ would come. Each covenant revealed more and more the historical redemptive timeline of the will of God, also known as the Messio Dei, the mission of God. The timeline found within Scripture and within the world of His redemptive plan to redeem all of creation back from that which was lost, to reconcile men back to God, to reconcile all of creation back under His rule from that being lost because of sin and destruction, to redeem it, to cleanse it, to reconcile it back. Each particular covenant reveals a certain picture of how God is going to do this. The Edemic Covenant. The Edemic Covenant showcases that there would be one day a child born of a woman who would save and reconcile man back into the place of righteousness with God. That the loss, the loss of the garden would not be eternal, but God had a plan to redeem the people back. The next, the Abrahamic Covenant displays a little bit more clarity that this child, this son of this particular woman would come from the seed of Abraham. And that this seed of Abraham would be a blessing to all the nations. Then the next covenant. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped the Noahic covenant. Noahic covenant. God will no longer destroy all of you and all of me, but he is going to be given redemption to the world. That the possibility of the complete cleansing of the world will happen again, but a lot like in the same manner. But he will be the one who secures and saves folks in the same way that Noah was saved. Through baptism by faith. The next covenant with Moses gets a little bit more clear on how this redemptive plan was going to work. That through... Through the seed of Abraham would come one who would completely abide and fulfill all the laws necessary to secure covenant faithfulness with God. Because the people of Israel, not what, five, ten minutes after the stones were brought down, were singing praises to a golden idol. They broke covenant almost immediately. But there was one coming who would secure all righteousness, all righteousness, who would be covenantly faithful so that way you and I could abide in Him in righteousness forever. Now we're getting some more clarity on who this seed of the woman would be. 
this Messiah. Each covenant gives a little bit more clarity, and this is the last covenant before Jesus would arrive. So let's read 2 Samuel 7. Let's see what the Lord says to David regarding this covenant. Starting in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Stop right there. We still see this heart of worship by David. All the wonderful things that the Lord has done, not only for David, but also for his people, he's like, you know what, that tent out there that he's dwelling in is not good enough. We're going to have to do better than that. So you've got to understand David's intentions are right here. Continuing on. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? Could you imagine that? Having that responsibility that the Lord speaks to you, be like, are you going to build me a house? Solomon tried it. Verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling with the people. God with His people. God tabernacling with His people. He has not worshipped in the same way that pagan gods were worshipped in that time. He didn't need the massive adornments of gold statues by which they were to worship and pay homage to. He dwelt with the people alive. He wasn't somewhere else. Like all the pagan gods. All the pagan gods, they sought to bring God down. God was already there amongst His people. He didn't need all that stuff. Continuing on. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I have appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Continuing on. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all the words, in accordance with all that vision, Nathan spoke to David. He had spoken everything the Lord had commanded him. We saw in this moment, all these words leading up to this moment of covenant with David, all these promises made by the Lord to David that he would see completely fulfilled, that faith and trust would be necessary for him to be able to observe the glory of the Lord fulfilling all of his promises. And now he receives the greatest promise ever. A covenant that a king is coming from David's line that the establishment of the throne will be forever. That God would be the one who builds a house. And that this son would secure his people in the dwelling place of the house that God builds forever. No more affliction. No more adversity. The throne will never be lost. Ever. That is a massive promise. David had saw many things fulfilled. He had heard of the Lord many times, but this time, this was huge. He is telling David, I'm going to use you that the kingdom that I'm bringing about will come to pass. It'll be through your family that this will come to pass. Like I said, more clarity, more clarity, more clarity, and here we are. That's where the term Son of David comes from, is this covenant. A covenant that has been stricken by from God to people, declaring His redemptive and reconciliation for all of the world to a man who ran fearful from a king, from a man who went and saved those while he was being oppressed, to a man who will eventually fail, and whose sons will fail, and the nation will fail. The question abides. Is the steadfast love of the Lord endure forever? Immediately, David shows gratitude and reconciliation, showcasing what is really going on here. Continuing on, verse 18. Verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus afar? And yet this was a great small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also to your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. David, right from the get-go, is trying to sit there and tell the Lord that this is far too great a promise. 
that this thing is so huge that there needs to be some sense of confirmation regarding this thing. Continuing on. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God forever, or God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, and so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Gratitude recognized the one who promises and fulfills his promises through his own steadfast love. Now, I want to make something absolutely sure in your mind regarding the term steadfast love. You guys remember last week when I talked about the Hebrew word ahava, what that meant, that Hebrew word for love, meaning absolutely undivided commitment, steadfast. No matter what, steadfast. This type of love is unconditional, unbreakable, that even in the midst of trouble and trial, steadfast love abides. We saw that with Jonathan. That when trouble came to the house of David, Jonathan came to David to strengthen his hand. Nicole stayed at home. So that term steadfast love is covenant language. It's a word that you would use in a marriage to say that you are committed, steadfast and sure, unbreakable, unmovable commitment no matter what may come to the house no matter what may befall you steadfast love is surety assurance steadfast in its meaning so whenever we talk of the term steadfast love here as we're going to see in the scripture this is not an emotional thing this is not saying, love, uh, Lord, love us with your emotions that I may have feelings of bliss and whatever other words you want you may use. This is saying, Lord, love me unmovable. I am unfaithful. I am a wreck. I wander. But you are steadfast in love. As we go through Psalm 89, you're going to notice this word pop up quite a bit. Steadfast love. Because something happens. Something happens in the midst of Israel where they would need to be reminded of this very covenant. Because David is gone at some point. So he's not there as a bearing witness to Israel that God had even made this covenant. So they needed to be reminded of the very words that God had spoken over David. Because some trouble is coming. Some calamity is coming. Some unfaithfulness is coming to the house of Israel into the house of Judah. But I want us to see that David recognized the reality of steadfast love because he experienced and now the Lord has made a huge promise and covenant. We find this in Psalm 89 verses 1 through 4. So going back to the psalm, let's go through this psalm verses 1 through 4 and what the plea of the people is in this moment. Verse 1, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. 
With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Make sense? Steadfast love, faithfulness, surety. Not emotion. Verse 2. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. They are completely re-uttering back out the covenant. And then reminder to God the words that were used to make covenant with David. Verse 3, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Verse 4, I will establish your offspring forever and build your uh, throne for all generations. Selah. Continuing on, there's another remembrance where the people of, the, uh, the people of Israel beckon back out to God, starting in verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen people from the people. I have found David my servant, and with my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I'll let you read the rest of it on your own time. But this beckoning by the, the Ezraite, Ethan, this song of plea, this lamentation given by Israel is beckoning to God to be reminded of the covenant He made, of the words He used. Because as we saw as we went through Psalm 89, they're in desperation. They are cast off. They described the destruction of the kingdom. They described seeing this throne and this walls and the, and the gold and the temple and everything just absolutely, utterly destroyed. So they're reminding God of what He said. Because in the face of this particular situation, things don't look so good. David and his sons are gone. The throne of Israel separates from the throne of Judah. Because the people said, I don't want David's lineage leading anymore. The nation's divided. Broken up at war with one another. The nation of Israel apart from Judah, immediately goes to the nations, the Goyim, the pagans, and starts making deals with them to worship their gods. Immediately. There was, the righteous king was not there at the beginning when they split. They began making deals for chariots and horses. They began making deals for grain and for food. They abided in the bales to provide what God had said He was going to provide for His people. Complete abandonment of God. They've forgotten all the wonders. They've forgotten all the signs. And they are far off. So now let's talk about number two. The calamity. What has happened? Why is this psalm beckoning to God to be reminded of His covenant? Why are they talking about destruction? That the Lord had turned His face away. Well, let's find out what happened. After David, Solomon would take the throne and things were looking great. Large fortune and military for all of Israel. 
The blessings of other nations were small compared to the kingdom of Israel. And like the Garden of Eden, wisdom would be used for their destruction. The nation that rejoiced at the presence of the true king, the Lord himself, would quickly abandon the Lord as king to serve the gods of the nations. One generation is all it took. David's son Solomon, that was it. They completely abandoned God and started worshiping the Baals. One generation. How fast they forgot all the things that the Lord had done. Completely, Lord, you're, you're not our king. These Baals, these idols here, they're the ones who provide. They're our true husband. They protect us. They guard us. They give us grain and bread and children. The kingdom would be divided. The people would be at each other's throats. Kings would come and the nation would repent. Then kings would come and make deals with the nations and worship the Baals in response. Israel became an unfaithful wife. A covenant had been stricken between God and Israel. That he would lure her out, Scripture says, and speak tenderly to her. That he would build her up in righteousness and clothe her in beauty. And he did that. But Israel became an unfaithful wife. There is actually a description, a display, and a prophetic imagery of exactly what Israel had done. We find this. In Hosea, you find this in Hosea chapter 2. Say to your brothers, this is Hosea writing as a prophet to the people of Israel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. Hosea is a little graphic. For their mother has played the whore, she has conceived them, uh, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her with thorns and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband for it was far better for me than than now. Do you hear what she's saying? Oh man, this current husbandry kind of stinks, so I'm just going to go back to the original God, Lord God, because it was far better when He was ruling. She was completely oblivious. Completely. Now do you see the woman at the well being pictured here? You're right. You've had five husbands, and the one you are with now is not your husband. That picture of the woman at the well is this. They went after other lovers, seeking to find protection, food, flax and oil, drink, but never satisfied. Never. Continuing on. 
And she did not know that it was I, the Lord, who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her myth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. The beast of the field shall devour them. But in the midst of such an indictment, in the midst of such an indictment, the Lord would remember His covenant and the extension of His steadfast love would be observed again. Because you would think reading this, you're like, man, God has just had it with Israel. He's casting her off, don't want anything to do with her. I guess that whole covenant thing wasn't too good because they failed over and over and over again. And we're going to see what actually happens to Israel because of this. But right in the midst of such a harsh judgment, the Lord says this, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Wait a second. Didn't you just say you were going to destroy her? That you were going to display her out in all of her lewdness and shame? That all of her enemies would come and take advantage and see her shame? He switches. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there, shall, there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. Now that word Baal there just simply means Lord or Master. This, the Lord is showcasing the renewing of the covenant. That it's not simply, oh, we have a fearful God over us to which we need to repent, otherwise we come to destruction. He's saying, I'm having a covenant, intimate relationship with you. I have established you. I have adorned you. I have allured you. I have poured out jewels and provisions to you and maintained my faithfulness to you. And even in the midst of your unfaithfulness, I am still your husband. Continuing on. For I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, na uh, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day when the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land. Sound familiar? And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. Listen to this. In steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. 
and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This is covenant language. The reestablishment of the covenant. And then Hosea, this is quite interesting. In the midst of all this, this prophet is out speaking regarding this unfaithful nation, this unfaithful covenant partner. Guess what his own wife goes and does? Gomer. She goes right to prostitution. Right back into prostitution. She had once been redeemed out of it. And she went back right into it. So you would think, oh, this is easy. Divorce. Hosea, just divorce her. I mean, Moses gave you a certificate of divorce. Just divorce her. You'd be good. But listen what the Lord tells Hosea to do. This image that you're about to read is an image of Christ, the faithful husband who goes to pay the price required to redeem and reconcile the unfaithful. Chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lathic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. That's covenant language. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. In the latter days, the house the Israelites thought that the covenant mentioned, on oh my apologies, Hosea is a picture of Christ. That destruction would come to all of Israel and Judah. That those words that the Lord had spoken at the first portion of chapter 2 of Hosea does come to pass. As a testimony, the second portion will come to pass as well. And Hosea is that demonstration, that display of what that would look like. Hosea going and paying the cost to redeem his bride back to himself. To go out to the wilderness. To allure her and speak wonderful things to her that she may be cleansed and restored. That she may be built up in righteousness and covenant faithfulness. Because destruction does come to Israel. And they need to be reminded and plead with their original husband to come and redeem them from the enslavement that they put themselves in. The prostitution they put themselves in. So let's see what happened to Israel. 2 Kings chapter 25. I want you to pay very close attention to what the author is writing gets destroyed here. What it is that's actually destroyed here. Starting in verse 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, and on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. 
On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Uh, a particular prophet says that this famine, or this famine would be so severe that they would eat their own children, and they did. They were in a rough spot. No blessing. No mercy. Utterly cut off. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon and Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. On the fourth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the, the captain, the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. What did the author say here? All of the houses were burned down. But what about the covenant? Didn't God say that he was going to build a house for them to dwell in? Why are all the houses burned down? Why is the house of the Lord burned down? Why is the king's house burned down? Continuing on. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze, listen to this descriptive words, there's no co- there's, this is not a coincidence that this particular author is writing this particular way. And the pillars of the bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands of the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans and all the bowls. What was the gold the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver? And for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands of the Solomon he had made in the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits and on it was a, captain of bron- a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates of a ball of bronze were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took uh, Sarai, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war, and five men of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the, uh, the people of the land, and sixty men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the last 
portion of history that Israel would experience until Jesus comes back in the scriptures. The house of the Lord and everything in the land, gone. The people utter destroyed and scattered. Complete, dire destruction. Zero hope in their face. All of the houses that they thought the Lord had built, all gone. So what now? What do we do? We're enslaved. We're bound by our own prostitution and sin and shame. What do we do? Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 38. But now you cast it off and reject it. Listen to their words now. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. And you made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face or hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? That's the grave. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all, my, all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. The psalmist is in the pit of despair. Everything that they had built in that psalm, a reminder of the covenant made with David, that this kingdom would be around forever, that the throne would never be taken or destroyed. The kingdom's gone. The throne is cast aside. Are you going to be angry with us forever? I know we made some mistakes, but what about your steadfast love? Where's that? Wasn't it to David? When are we going to be back in the land? Aren't we your chosen people? Did you not espouse us to yourself? Did you not reconcile us to you, allure us out of Egypt? Did you allure us out so we could just be utterly destroyed? Picked apart by the nations? Yes, I know that I sold myself into it. Can you help me out? Again? 
This is what brings us to number three. The cry. The cry. In the midst of judgment and calamity, the appeal to God is in remembrance of a steadfast love and the covenant made with David. The people did not abide, but the promise and covenant was made to David. The cries of the people in repentance was the reminder of God's own promises in spite of their unfaithfulness. Their appeal was to the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. Even David cried to the Lord in the midst of his own trials and troubles, even when his sin was the cause. We see this in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Sound familiar? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. David recognized that even in spite of the calamity, even in spite of his own sin and shame, whenever he fails and falls and busts his face, that God is the one who establishes his steadfast love, that he is faithful to his promise, and that's all David had. And that's all Israel has right now. That is all they have. David does not appeal to God on his own merit. He doesn't sit there and say, Well, aren't I your chosen? Didn't I do good things for you? Didn't I pray enough, sing enough, lead enough worship, involve myself in the church enough that you shouldn't you bless me right now? I know I screwed up. He didn't appeal that way. He appeals to God's own faithfulness, not his own, because he's nothing. Nothing. Doesn't deserve it. So the only thing he has is the promise. He even cried out in the midst of his own sin, which was the cause. We find this in Psalm 90. The very next psalm. The psalmist writes, So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, how pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish us, the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The psalmist appeals to the steadfast love of the Lord. The point of rejoicing, even in the midst of their own destruction, their own calamity, they don't sit there and say, appeal to, oh, technically you made a promise to Abraham, and I'm a seed of Abraham. By your name's sake, restore us. By your steadfast love, remember us. 
The cries of the repentant was met with a glorious display in response and steadfast love. Do you remember what happened to Israel? Destruction. Gone. Completely oppressed by nations after that moment. Eventually they'd be oppressed by the Romans. And do you remember during Advent whenever we talked about how they prayed for 400 years for the Lord to answer? In Luke, sorry, during Luke, they spent 400 years going to the temple every day. Pray, remember us, O Lord. May you answer our prayer. Hear us in our affliction. Hear us in our repentance. Please respond. And we went through that whole part about John the Baptist and Jesus being the response. Paul picks up on this. Because that's you and I. We're the unfaithful Israel. We seek after things to satisfy ourselves. Sin abides in us so strong that we seek after those things and claim them. This is mine. This is my inheritance. This is what I deserve. They did this to me. And we cast off all the stuff. The gospel forgotten. And we stumble and we fail. The praises that we sing on Sunday quickly abandon on Monday. When times get tough. Or if somebody cuts us off. Or somebody says the wrong thing to you. Or you hear about somebody else's whispers about you. Gospel, uh, I want vengeance. How could you do this to me? Look what you have done. Look what you've made me do. Who I've become is your fault. We abide in our sin and we relish in it because we find some sense of satisfaction in the moment. The reason Israel has forgotten all the promises of God, forgot His temple, forgot His feasts and His Sabbath, is because they sought satisfaction in the moment. They didn't want to wait till morning. They wanted it right now. And they were willing to do whatever it took to get it. You need some gold? Do you need some gold, Assyria? Hey, just rip it out of the temple and give it to them so we can have our chariots. Do you need some gold, Egypt? Here, just rip it out of the temple and give it to Egypt so that we can have grain. They pieced apart the temple to satisfy their immediate satisfaction. Completely forgotten. And the Lord dealt with this for hundreds of years until they just completely stripped the temple. The temple didn't look like the temple no more. The ark was gone. They didn't care. And now they're crying out, Oops, we messed up. Now I'm removed. I am utterly broken. Cast down. I've lost my family. I've lost my job. I've lost my child. 
I've lost my reputation. I've lost my friends. What do I do now? Can I be reconciled? I have done too many things that God could not possibly forgive me. I have brought this upon myself. I'm Gomer. I deserve to be in chains. There's no redemption found for me. Listen to what Paul writes regarding this very thing. Paul recognizes something extremely powerful that he writes to the Romans. Of all people, the church there at Rome. Listen to this, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed His love for us that while we were still yet Sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see the response that God had? Remember when we read the beginning of the covenant? He said, I dwelt in tents among you. This new covenant found in Christ, God now dwells in you for all of eternity. The response found in the midst of anguish and shame, being completely cast off, the answer was Christ, the Son of David, who did come, who built a house for all of eternity. Continuing on. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received what? Reconciliation. The response to the psalm, how long will you be angry with us, O Lord? was met with Christ demonstrating love towards us while we were still sinners. Gomer didn't redeem herself. Hosea did not go to Gomer and say, pick yourself up, go get a job, clean yourself off, and maybe I'll consider you my wife again. Hosea was told to go and pay the price necessary to redeem her back for eternity, forever. Christ was that response. The first half of Hosea 2 was utter destruction. But the faithfulness of God and His steadfast love was the second half of Hosea 2. In Christ. That response demonstrates the steadfast love of the Lord. 
that whenever he made the promise to David, it meant far more than stones and sticks, than gold and silver. It meant in a kingdom where no rust will find its way there, where no enemy can take it anymore, where no moth can destroy it. Therefore, do not lay up your treasures on this earth, but lay them up in heaven. Do you see the eternality of the reality that Christ is, the fulfillment of the promise of God to mankind? This wasn't just about a kingdom, an earthly one with stones and sticks. This was about a kingdom not made with hands. Hands were pierced for it. That while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. So does the steadfast love of the Lord endure forever? Yes. Despite your sin, despite your shame, despite those moments of weakness where you fall, it still endures. You may find yourself this morning being like Gomer. You've ensnared yourself in things that you wish you weren't in. You look around and find yourself in a place that you shouldn't be in. You know this is not going to be good for you. You're surrounded by death and destruction. You feel as if you have no hope. But there was one who did come to redeem you back, who paid the price necessary to pull you out of that enslavement and oppression. And the steadfast love of the Lord demonstrated that. So is the steadfast love of the Lord forever? Absolutely. And that is the same cry that we have every single day. So in conclusion, there's three points that I want us to take away this morning for you to realize. One, God has made promises from the beginning and fulfilled them all. From the very moment that mankind fell, God was there making a promise to redeem mankind. From that very moment that this was going to come to pass. That death and destruction was not the last point of humanity. But redemption is. Reconciliation is. God has fulfilled every single one of them. The Edemic Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant. Every element, over 4,000 prophecies in the Old Testament, and all of them find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He has demonstrated the steadfast love of the Lord so that way you and I could abide in the gospel and believe and have faith and trust in it. Even in our own calamity, our own sin and our own shame, our own hardships and our own trials, you have a bride, or I'm sorry, a husband who will not leave you. And when you need it, he will allure you out and speak tenderly to you to restore you, cleanse you, affirm you, confirm you, and strengthen you. Number two, God has fulfilled his promises to save sinners and redeem you in spite of your sin and shame for all of eternity. In spite of it, that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't make us get our lives together first. He says, I will die for you and you're mine. I've called you by name. Clothed you in righteousness. Number three. God has made promises to all who abide in Jesus Christ by faith. 
that all who have pain will be healed, that all will have shame will have their shame removed, that all who weep will weep no more, and those who hunger and thirst will hunger and thirst no more. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. In this life, now and here, we have hope. We have promises to which we get to hold to. Whenever we receive a diagnosis of some kind, or something terrible happens in the midst of our lives or in our family, we have a promise. He has shown Himself faithful from eternity. That right now, in the midst, in the short moment of your affliction, you could abide in Him because He's shown Himself faithful to everything else. So take on hope. He will never abandon you. He will always be with you to the end of the age. In closing, I want to talk regarding the song that we're going to be singing here in just a moment. It comes from Psalm 90. You have been our dwelling place, O everlasting God. Before you formed the mountaintops, you were before it all. And soon our lives turn back to dust. When the sun comes up, satisfy us. Before day has passed us by, before our hearts forget all your goodness, satisfy us in your love. The wrath of God poured out for sin on Jesus crucified. Consider him our hiding place. Our shelter is alive. Because he lived and died for us. When the sun comes up, satisfy us. Before the day has passed us by. Before our hearts forget all your goodness, satisfy us in your love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great is thy faithfulness. You have demonstrated your steadfast love in the midst of calamity and destruction and our unfaithfulness our continued unfaithfulness, though we fall and return to slavery, though we re return back to those old vices that seek to draw us away, you are steadfast in your love. That you redeem us back, that you have beckoned us back to you. That you have paid the cost necessary to redeem us out of our sin and out of our shame. Now we are able to hold fast to the promises that you have made in Christ Jesus. That in this life we are sojourners. That troubles and afflictions will come our way. But the, those who dwell in the house of the Lord will endure forever. Will live forever. For you have built a house where no army can destroy it. You have built a house where no calamity will befall it. You have built a house where nothing can destroy it ever again. Nothing will take it from your hand. And your throne is established forever. We recognize this in your steadfast love response in sending Christ Jesus for us. It is in his name we pray and hope and have our being. Amen.